listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. difficult people and difficult situations that we face where we find ourselves, um, whether we like it or not, in the company of <clears throat> those that challenge us. And uh, I realize what a common theme <laughs> this has been uh, for a while. Um, and, and how tragic it is to think that we have to do something about it. In other words, when we are around somebody who is in a difficult spot or someone who is projecting their difficulties on us, there is a, a sense that it's a, a call to action, that we must in some capacity fix something. Uh, and this isn't so. This is a trap, actually, for us to assume that there is something to be done. I've uh, shared before that, uh, and many of you know this already, among the greatest teachers among us are those who uh, are going through a very, a very conscious death experience. And one of the most common refrains that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was talking about in, um, I guess it was Death and Dying, she was talking about how among the most uh, uh, beautiful gifts we could give to anybody when they're in the, the uh, uh, in a horrific situation, is to just listen. And there's a tendency for us to want to fix. And that act of fixing is more often than not unwelcome. Similarly, someone who is going through a really rough time or is behaving in an unconscious way, there's a tendency to want to defend against them or against their unconsciousness. And this indeed is unnecessary. We don't have to defend against it. We can set boundaries, but there's a difference between setting a boundary and then behaving as if they've always crossed the boundary. So one of the great aspects of the teaching that I, I think has been very, very helpful for me, of course, uh, uh, I've never been around any difficult people, uh, <laughs> is to... Uh, um, Make sure you're really clear about how and when you will, so to speak, get off the phone. Okay? Now, this is a real simple practice, but if you're ever in a situation, I'd say get off the phone, but it could be anywhere. Um, uh, you could be at the store, you could be uh, having lunch with somebody, having coffee, be on a date, or whatever. You're the one that gets to decide when to stop. So the sidebar of this conversation was um, I, I was in a situation where I was listening to someone, you know, vent. And I, I was surprised that they were going to start venting, actually. This wasn't anticipated. If you can anticipate it, you can kind of prepare for it. But I was unprepared for the fact that they were going to start venting. And the vent went almost ballistic. It went from zero to 10, very short order. 
you know. Do, do you mind if I talk about this? Just a couple seconds. Okay. So here's what he does. You know, and it's just kind of just I'm like listening, 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 listening. And then what I decided to do was just make sure that I could concentrate on my breath as I was listening. Because that was the most useful thing to do, is just listen. And then, oh, nod. That's another good thing to do. Nod. <laughs> Doesn't mean you agree with them, but it means that you are connecting with them. And keep your eyes open. That would be the third thing. <laughs> when those eyes close, that there is a, a dharmic wall is thrown. <laughs> the great dharma wall of uh, uh, ego. But you nod, keep your eyes open, and so forth. And then what, um, when I realized there was really no end in sight, I kind of started saying, you know what? I'm happy to talk about this some more. We're going to have to do it later because I have an appointment to uh, floss my cat or whatever. <laughs> Make it up. Um, actually, I would recommend not using the floss my cat. <laughs> it's, a, it's rarely believed. Very useful because uh, it'll stop the conversation. <laughs> There's certain comments you can say that will stop a conversation. Dead in its... Ow, my eyeball! That's one. <laughs> I don't know why. It always works for me. Yeah. <laughs> that was dark anyway so uh, but getting to a place where you can actually um, you know extricate yourself from from the meeting much easier on the phone but uh, I have uh, I have seen people actually in my in my place of work where this has been one of those uh, uh, places of counsel like you cannot afford a 45 minute phone conversation about one issue that you cannot resolve, you know? Um, you have to be able to extricate yourself, and that's setting a limit, okay? Getting caught by their unconsciousness would be to defend against what they're saying. And there's so rarely a need to do that, even if you're getting attacked. I don't know if ever, any of you have ever felt like you've been attacked unjustly and so forth. Uh, I certainly have. Um, I do all the time, actually. And it's, it's one of those things where you just kind of, you know, nod and smile. And, all right. Um, thank you for sharing. Or, huh, that's an interesting, interesting perspective. Right. There's no reason or need to engage. Sometimes, however, standing up with the full-throated roar is completely and utterly appropriate as long as it's coming from a place of real deep consciousness. If it's reactive, you're just adding to the war. If, on the other hand, what, you can, what, you're, what you're thinking of saying involves that boundary and involves a very conscious expression of truth, and it's infused with and sourced from a place of real spiritual groundedness, Things can happen in a really cool way. But there's no anger in that. There's no anger in that. There's this great, uh, great bit of Japanese mythology where the, uh, the uh, it's not a koan, but it's just a story about how uh, a, a monk was approached, was approached by a warrior. And uh, what is the difference between heaven and hell? And the, uh, the monk said, well, I'm not going to tell you. He says, what do you mean you won't tell me? 
I'm the, I'm the shogun. I, I, I'll destroy you. Yeah, well, I'm not gonna tell you. <laughs> so the shogun pulls out his sword, and the monk says, "Ha, hell!" And the shogun puts back his sword. He says, "Heaven." And this is a place we can be. It's hard work. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying it's a you know, cakewalk, um, but it's where we actually begin to walk the talk, um, where we can begin to engage in a practice that's uh, uh, fulfilling, rich, not only for ourselves, but for others. It's a gift to others. Um, and there is a, a point at which uh, bringing just that radical, rooted consciousness into what it is that we do day to day can uh, be caught virally just as easily as unconsciousness. So, with that in mind, I think um, we can begin a uh, night together here, kind of exploring this idea of how it is that you feel. Are you in a place of uh, hell or heaven most of the time? Uh, are you pulling out that sword? Or are you putting it back in the scabbard? Are you, uh, are you at peace or at war? And for those of us that are uh, at war, um, I would, with, with uh, love in my heart, say, um, try peace. Give it a shot. It might not feel peaceful, but give it a shot. As we begin to sit still, we can try and recognize how we are not these thoughts. What's real in us, in us is not these thoughts, but rather the observer of these thoughts. This observer never changes. The thoughts change. The same applies with our body. We can observe this body of ours. It may feel good, it may feel bad, it may creak, it may glide. This body that's gotten us through each day, sometimes broken, sometimes healthy. This body is not us. It's a part of us, just like our mind. As we begin to experience the body, as we begin to see the body as an experience, we're brought right back to that awareness that can see our thoughts. Being the seer of these thoughts and the seer of this experience we call body never changes. The seer remains the same. The mind changes. The body changes. As we begin to find this mind and this body in this space, we begin to see 
the experience of this space, the temperature of the room, the sound of the people around us, the environment itself is within the seer's point of reference. The seer has no center and no circumference. The seer sees this environment, this body that's within this environment, this mind, this house within this body. The seer doesn't move, but sees what moves. The seer does not evolve, but sees things evolve, including thoughts, including feelings, including all that is outside or perceived to be outside of us. Rest is that seer. So one of the gifts that difficult people or difficult situations tend to bring is they show us where we're still clinging. I've talked about this a great deal, but I think it's good to review. Um, if, and the way you can measure if you're clinging, you know, to what extent you're clinging, check and see to what extent Within your experience, there is, I use two words, okay, you could probably use ten, but just two. To what extent is our grace and ease permeating your entire experience? To what extent are grace and ease permeating your entire experience? If they are totally permeating your experience, there's probably not much attachment at all. If there's some holding a little bit, okay, there's a little bit of attachment going on. If it's absolutely non-grace and ease, <laughs> it's probably a lot of clinging. 
you have become a Klingon. <laughs> I couldn't help that, sorry. I did share with you that uh, Maeve's new favorite program, Star Trek. Okay, old school Star Trek. Yeah, go figure. I was an addict when I was a little kid. Just absolutely loved it until I saw the salt monster and then I got scared, but anyway. And you're going to have to go Google that salt monster if you want to figure out what the salt looked like. She was very scary. Um, well, so when things get difficult, it's, it's kind of a trick, but, but when things get difficult, you have an opportunity for awakening. When it's non-grace and ease permeating the experience, boom, there's the opportunity for awakening. And what I mean by that is it's an opportunity for us to let go. If it ain't grace and ease, let go until it is. Keep letting go. No sense in carrying stuff that is exhausting you. And if it's not grace and ease, you're getting exhausted. It's an insidious creep of, of you know, self-brutality. And by extension, that self-brutality usually translates into brutality against others. So... You know, that unconsciousness that gets us to hold uh, creates a, you know, a deep, uh, deep sadness. And that sadness is temporary. For instance, um, if the Giants weren't going to go to the World Series, it damn well better have been the Cubs. <laughs> this was my attachment, my clinging. For an assortment of reasons, Number one, it's been 108 years since they've gone. Longest you know, distance between world championships of any franchise in any sport. 108 stitches in a baseball. <laughs> oh, you laugh. <laughs> Chapman can probably throw that ball close to 108 miles an hour. <laughs> Let's just say, for the sake of the argument, that he can. That kid can throw. If you take Hendrick's birthday, 12-7-1989, that adds up to 108. There are 108 impediments to enlightenment. Folks, it's all here. It's in the stars, okay? Those are the Cubs, man. Um, but I found that there was all sorts of uh, non-grace and ease uh, when I saw them dismantling the Giants, but, but man, if we're going to lose to one team, I was going to create some grace and ease around that. Letting go really entails kind of enjoying the fun of it all, whatever it might be. And it's easier to do that in sport, I think, than in lots of other arenas. But find yours. Find your arena where you can, at some point, kind of let go of the outcome and just enjoy the thrill ride that's happening in front of you. Uh, politics is hard. It's hard to do that with politics. I'm always amazed at um, uh, the pundit class that can seem to kind of give up pretty decent analysis that doesn't seem to be bent on one side or the other. And it doesn't even look like they're really resisting one side or the other. They're telling it like it is. 
a good reporter, for instance. Um, I was speaking to my, uh, my, my brother about this, who's uh, very interested in how journalism may or may not survive over the next 20 years. And, and his, his point was really cool. He was talking about how a good reporter has to be able to literally separate themselves, like I've talked about in meditation. We don't, we don't create a dissociation, but we create an observer and an observed. And a good reporter can do that with a tremendous amount of skill. Here's, here's what's happening. The bias, you can't escape. Similarly with our spiritual practice, there's always going to be bias. And oftentimes the bias is something that's shadow in its orientation, so we don't see it. So we might think we're in a place, for instance, of uh, uh, you know, grace and ease, when in fact, if you really dig a little bit beneath the surface, you can see that there's a lot underneath that's really not going okay. And so how do we deal with that? Well, resistance, based on how I'm kind of discussing it here, is delusion. It is the disease. If we can be very accepting of what's going on and then act and respond from that place of acceptance with total relaxation, now we're actually engaging an awakened life. We're actually we're letting our walk meet our talk. This is the practice. Um, I share all the time this one of my favorite quotes in Buddhism. A monk asks the master, young man, what are the teachings of an entire lifetime? And young man, young man who was actually kind of a, a, a brute, he said, uh, an appropriate response. Well, now we get into, okay, so what's an appropriate response? Well, by this work, or this definition that I'm using here tonight, an appropriate response is one that is infused very consciously with grace and ease. And that grace and ease is something that spontaneously occurs in us, through us, when we let go. When we're not holding on to a position, when we're not at war, when we're not divided, when there's no in here, out, out there, it's just all this. And we engage from that place of relaxation. So, study your experience whenever you find yourself in a place of non-grace or non-ease or both. Um, because you're being given a gift. Be supremely alert whenever you feel any tension arise <coughs> in you. Okay? Sometimes this can be body tension. I have a, in me, it's like my thoracic, this thoracic part of my back just starts, I can feel it when I'm starting to embody a kind of tension that's going on here. It's always been that way. Uh, it took me, you know, well into my 30s before I realized, my goodness gracious, I can actually feel it coming on. Okay? But every one of us manifests our tension bodily in some way. Um, when I was doing a rather extensive retreat, it was interesting to me how uh, people 
people, you know, at the end of a few weeks were, um, uh, you could see that they were either having real emotional tension or they were having physical tension. The physical tension, the back, the knees, the whatever. Other people were just fine with their bodies, but you knew, I mean, you could, you could hear the, the sniffles, you know, as they were breaking on their cushion. But on the other side of that, once they kind of were cooked by that fire, there was all sorts of freedom. And it go, everybody's different. You don't necessarily have to go through you know, an excruciating portal of pain to receive a kind of rebirth. It's common, but you, you, it's, not, it's not a requirement. Um, but uh, still, it was just, uh, I remember thinking, it's so remarkable. Meeting our resistance with the full and open body and mind challenge, but nonetheless something that's, that's uh, uh, necessary. So, what do you do when you're alert? Well, there are two things. First of all, there are, there are more than two things actually, so let's go through some of these that are, that are coming to mind. You want to make sure that as you're alert to the tension that's coming on, you want to make sure you are very alert as that tension comes on to the ego and its tendency to corrupt the offering. The ego corrupts any offering in really creative ways. So tension comes on, okay, you're feeling resistance. This is not grace, this is not ease, this is not my beautiful house. This, sorry, talking heads, sorry. 1987, good year. But we can feel, we can feel our tendency to point fingers. It's really common, okay? Now when we can see this in ourselves, our tendency to go, ah, okay? we can now have a degree of compassion for those that are doing it to us. If, they're pointing, if somebody's pointing a finger at us, essentially, whatever we're giving them is creating a situation where there's non-grace and non-ease showing up, and we're, getting, we're gonna take the hit for it. Because their ego has corrupted whatever offering it was that we gave them. So finger pointing we wanna watch out for. We wanna watch out for a defensiveness. We get defensive. I'm around people that get defensive all the time. The job of a teen to be defensive. To be arrogant and afraid. You want to see a cool animal? An arrogant and afraid animal. A fearful, arrogant animal. Those are that's just God's great gift to the jungle. Um the defensive posture that comes into things. Oh yeah? Well, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much. Oh, you, you hate me. Okay, get in line. <laughs> <laughs> Acting judgmental would be another thing. Finger, finger pointing, getting defensive, acting judgmental, you know? You ever watched your ego start writing a script about somebody? You know what I mean? It's like you start going, oh yeah? Well, <laughs> you know, you just kind of just go right down the list. Oh, I want to make sure I say that. <laughs> oh God, talk about carrying that weight. Oh geez, so unnecessary. It happens all the time. 
but just this is one of the things. It's a great gift of practice. Blaming. And that's beyond finger pointing. Blaming can be finger pointing that's not so it's not so uh, uh, specific, it might be broad-based, a broad brush stroke of blame. The one I, I'm, I'm loving hearing right now. Yeah, well the Republicans, or the Clintonistas, or whatever, you know, you can kind of go into this, this space, which, and it really takes away, I mean it might be, you know, get that person's rocks off to, like, to, to label people in such a way. But I would say that when we go broad brushstroke and we're not specific, and we go into that kind of, of blame, we're really trying to fortify our defenses. Now this isn't to say that there aren't you know, strengths and weaknesses of people on various you know, uh, uh, political persuasions, in various political persuasions. I'm not making a judgment on politics at all. I'm making a point a dharmic point that suggests if there is widespread blame, if you, if you blame with a broad brushstroke, watch that. That's a golden area for practice. I would say the, uh, the maybe the best one is reacting to someone else's unconsciousness. How do you react to someone else when they're blaming or they're pointing the finger? or they're getting defensive, or they're doing something that you can tell is not oriented around grace and ease. And this is most of our day that this happens. So what I would suggest is that we recognize that there are actions or reactions or statements or blames or defensiveness or finger pointing, or whatever, it's not them. It's their activity. You never have to forgive a person. You can forgive the activity. And if their activity is coming from that place, you know exactly right now where it's coming from. It's coming from the sense that they're going to lose something. It's fear-based. They're afraid. And so if, you, if someone is afraid, have you ever seen a little kid that's afraid? You know? What do you want to do? You want to... Right? Now, if you do that with grown-ups, you get arrested, okay? <laughs> or at least you probably piss them off because they can't see that what they really need is to feel less fearful. But they are damn sure that you are not going to make them, with your silly hug, make them feel less fearful. You ever been around somebody who likes to hug too much? You're kind of like, just, 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 no. You, know? <laughs> you, know? you don't have to. No, no, no. No, you don't have to. Hey, 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 hey. It's a hand. Shake it. Shake it. It's an 80s. Anyway. So the, the trick here at this point is to, is, to, is to turn up your consciousness. You become alert. When somebody else, when you can see that they're in a place of non-grace and non-ease, you turn up your consciousness. Hannah, how high do you turn it up? All the way to? 11. All the way to 11. Nobody got it. <laughs> Nobody got that. Anybody ever see this is Spinal Tap? You turn it all the way? Okay. So. <laughs> crickets. Yeah, there are crickets. <laughs> Sit down comic here. Okay. 
in uh, if you ever get a chance, go on to go on to Google, um, uh, key in. It goes all the way up to eleven, and you will see Christopher Guest give one of the most hilarious unscripted moments in the film. This is Spinal Tap. It's a Rob Reiner mockumentary where he follows this uh, heavy metal group around, and they keep losing drum drummers to spontaneous combustion. <laughs> they, I mean, it's absolutely hilarious. And he, 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 talks, to, he talks to Christopher Guest, and he goes, he goes, well, t tell me about this amplifier. And he goes, well, this amplifier goes, it's, it's really, I like it a lot, because it, it goes all the way to 11. <laughs> and Reiner says, well, why don't you just make 10 louder? And he goes, no, no, it goes all the way to 11. <laughs> and he just kind of let it go. So turn your consciousness all the way to 11. When we do this, really interesting things begin to happen. When our awareness is such that we are, we are so clued into where the other person is coming from, usually two things can happen. One, and this is the most common, when you become very aware and you can become receptive, you can become a listener to their unconsciousness, it tends to settle things down. That's most common, okay? However, and that's optimal, you know? But the other thing that can happen is your consciousness is completely anathema to their unconscious. It's the, it's, it's the antithesis, and sometimes that unconsciousness feels so threatened by your awareness and your acceptance that it gets even more angry. That it tries even harder. That it pushes even with more force. And at that point, you come in with limit. Okay? You put your limit there without ever having to get defensive and figure out how to extricate yourself from the situation. It's always helpful if you can pre-plan. If you can't pre-plan, sometimes it's, it's even a little bit awkward. I've heard it sound like this. I need a timeout. And that, that works in most cases unless you're getting mugged. <laughs> Tried that too. Did not work at all. <laughs> Give me all your money. Okay. Hang on. <laughs> I need a timeout. The other thing that doesn't work is if you go, I'm a monster. That does not work at all. Just trust me on that one. It's Halloween. Come on. So, letting your deep, unattached awareness that is beyond the boundaries of mind or beyond the boundaries of past and future, letting that kind of be it's a, a center point for you in your in your day-to-day -day, especially when you know it's going to get hot can be super helpful this is where we can we can really really begin to practice because especially if you know it's going to it's going to be tough if you're ever going into a situation that you know is going to be tough you can look at it one of two ways oh my god this is going to be tough why do i have to go through this or just to flip it on you and see see how this try this one on here a little bit I'm going into a really tough situation, man, there are going to be tons of opportunities for practice here. Yes. Yes, there are. And that can have an incredible um, affect, affect on how things can unfold for you. And hopefully, by extension, everybody else. Because I would say 
the most contagious thing in the world is someone's unconsciousness. The second most contagious thing in the world is someone's consciousness. And so if you can meet those difficult situations, those difficult scenarios, by taking your awareness all the way up to 11, in every, every single situation that you possibly can, what you're doing here is you're, you're actually embodying kind of an upright posture in the face of life's winds. And you're not forcing anything. You're still coming at the world from a place of love. You're still engaging fully. You're meeting your life. You're not shirking responsibility. You're open. But you're there. You're present. You're in the present moment. You are coming from the now into a situation where somebody's most likely bringing up tons of stuff from the past and they're fearing the loss of some potential future event brought on by some future event. Practice this. When it's awful, there's a gift. When it's amazing, there's a gift there too. My gosh, there's a gift all the time. It's Christmas all the time. Or Hanukkah. And Hanukkah. And gift-giving time. Whatever. It's a blessing. And then this life begins to essentially become a conscious expression of grace and ease. You may assume we're meeting next Monday. I will not be in costume. Just, I'm just saying. Sorry. I'm sorry. We'll not be in costume, but yeah. Yeah, we'll meet on Halloween. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. You can dress up. You can dress up. Cool. <laughs> yes. Um, it, your topic's very interesting because it seems like of late um, with clients I've had... Uh, extremely difficult clients and I, maybe I'm attached to my you know peace and serenity um, but what I'm finding is that even I had this one woman who would call me 24 7 I mean it didn't matter what time of day night she called me I'm not the primary person mm -hmm. um, and everything I mean it's just this <laughs> tiny garbage everything I did she would find some fault in it um, and then Where was your boundary? Right. So I realized you're not going to answer she, that question, are you? Yes, I am. Oh. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> was there a little resistance there? <laughs> There's. You can practice with that. You can practice with that. Go ahead. Um, and I felt that I was being conscious because I thought, you know, this woman has some anxiety. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I just trying to say, you know. Be compassionate and patient, but you know. And then I realized, okay, well now, now we need some boundaries. And she'd come crashing, you know, through yeah. those. And finally, I had to kind of hit her with a double mm -hmm. barrel shotgun. Mm -hmm. And only at that point would she shut up and go away. Right. So what I find 
is that um, it seems like the more compassionate you are, it, I wonder whether people read it as you have no boundaries. Well, be careful there of blaming with a broad stroke. You have to take well. You have to no. That's cool. The, the situation doesn't matter. What matters is your reaction on a case by case basis. Everyone is different. This one that you're describing, compassion to you, be really careful with that definition, because compassion to you, it sounds like the way you've got compassion defined in your head is you, oh, it's all okay. That's not compassion. That's called. I am now a doormat. There's nothing compassionate about being a doormat. In fact, you are letting violence occur. You are perpetuating violence by being a doormat. That's not compassion. That's idiot compassion, as Trungpa calls it. Okay? Idiot compassion. Now we have engaged compassion, which is being able to read a situation and a person and their needs and be able to enhance awareness, okay? Now that can take on, that, that, that takes some, some practice because you know all sorts of things can generate awareness, but what we're talking about is the awareness that is filled with grace and ease. So how is it that you could do that in the conversation? It sounds like what this, this particular individual, on a case-by-case basis once again, needed was to know where your boundary was. Well, she heard it. Well, uh, right. She wrote right over it. Well, okay. So, so then, then if she wrote over your boundary, now is your reaction to that going over my boundary? You have to, you have to be really clear what you want it to be. Was she worth the hassle? If she was worth the hassle, then you just negotiate in your own heart and mind where the next boundary is going to be, since you wrote a rough shot over that one. But it's on you, it's not on her. So, 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 so the, the gift here is, I mean, she gave you, I mean, letting go of your definition, I mean, if you're, let's put it this way, if you are attached to peace, you will never find it. Because peace cannot come from an attachment to it. It comes from this, not this. So there are all sorts of cool things to play with in that scenario, you know? When we have people in our lives that are just really, it's, it's crazy making, well, that's not their fault. We have, to, we have to give them permission for us to feel crazy. It's like no one can make you feel guilty without your permission. No one can make you feel crazy. No one can make you feel anything without your permission. So among the most compassionate things you can do is make sure that the compassion goes in both directions. Goes to them and to you. And so that you can you can create balance that way, without which. Uh, that is about setting another boundary, right? Yeah. Because I don't want to feel crazy. Which yeah you 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 can't feel crazy unless you give the person permission to make you feel crazy, right? Your craziness is your responsibility. No one can make you feel crazy. No one can make you feel happy. No one can enlighten you. No one can. Mm -mm. No one can do anything to you without your permission. You have to get caught by their unconsciousness. So the cool thing here to work with is, if you sense somebody's unconscious, now how do you turn it all the way up to 11? 
isn't that about setting boundaries? I think so. Yeah. Pretty much the through line of my entire talk. Setting that setting that boundary. But but the boundary is not so that you can you know? It's not this. It's this. And there are options. You always have options. You know? And and it's tricky. I mean, it is a negotiation. Business is, by definition, a negotiation. And I know for people who are like you, who are in, in you know, service or consulting or whatever, there is this tendency. I mean, the, the, the ones that crack me up are, are, and forgive if there are any attorneys in this room, but these, these men and women that are charging you know, three and $4,000 an hour and complaining that the person called them at 8.30 at night when they're not at the office. It's like, you know... For what you're getting paid, I mean, you negotiated that salary, right? And so, so up it if if so that it does become worth it. Um, and actually, I would say that the, the one individual I'm thinking of right now is actually an incredibly ethical. He's a good man. He's a really good man. But I always mock him about how I mean, he gets he gets paid more in one. I don't even want to talk about it. Anyway. <laughs> He, he earned this settlement for this. He did a class action thing that I mean, he never, he, you know, he's never going to have to work a day in his life. But he loves the law. He loves, you know, being in negotiation. He loves the give and take. And there's so much to him that's so Buddhist because he he doesn't he he's, he sets a goal, but he knows he can't attach to that outcome because he has no idea what the jury's going to do. Sidebar. Sorry about that. But it's 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 worth your. It, it, I think it's worth consideration. You know, where is your boundary? Finally, set it. You know, and 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 I also don't think there's anything wrong with the full throated roar, like I said. You know, well, that was the double barrel shotgun. The shotgun, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Aim well. So I know I have to be really, really rigid um, and uncompromising in some of my boundaries. Mm -hmm. And that's an opportunity for me to be open. How do we, that give and take, that tweak to find out where would uh -huh. be the appropriate one for that particular situation right, right, without right. being stable? Right, right, right. <laughs> well, depends if you like the person sitting next to you or not. <laughs> it's a great question. You have to try it out. Okay, you have to try it out, and this feels funny. There's is a difference. The right kind of funny, weird. Is well, it wrong? Well, you can. I I can't tell you. I can't tell. No one can answer that question but you. So it's it's taking a situation and figuring out what is the most generous thing for all concerned, and that means you. So as kind of an addendum to what Filey was talking about. When, when we are being asked to give a, an appropriate response, as Yun Men would say, we're asked to give of ourselves to the situation in the most generous possible way. And generosity has to go in every direction. So if we are a doormat, to use the example I gave before, we are only giving generosity in one direction. That's not generosity. That's allowing somebody else to uh, uh, become actually greedy. So we're actually adding Generous to poison. Favor, yeah. 
Right. If, on the other hand, we are letting uh, compassion go in both directions, within us, and, and sharing it uh, externally with the other, with both self and other, now we're in a situation where deeper understanding can, can arise, where grace and ease has a really good shot of unfolding naturally and spontaneously. But there needs to be presence. The one thing that can't happen, or the way we can prevent that from happening, I should say, is if it's reactive all the time. Doesn't mean it can't happen quickly, but it means it's reactive from a place that's calculating risk. You know, we test it out a little bit, open a little bit here. Oh, no, you know, I'm no longer comfortable with that and being able to have that conversation. But is that discomfort once again an opportunity to grow? Of course it is. There's no growth. I mean, does that mean it's a bad thing then going back in, restrict, constricting the boundaries? Okay, a little discomfort here. Is this okay? I don't know. Well, like I said, I can't answer that question. You're going to have to test it out. But I would say that there's no such thing as learning happening without discomfort. Exactly. Because we, by nature, when we are learning, whatever it is, whether it's our multiplication tables or it's it, you know, uh, uh, set theory, calculus, uh, astrophysics, or you know, literature, it's a, yeah, right? Mm -hmm. But then we, we transcend and include it in our in our uh, experience. But what, yeah, but where do we cut our losses? And uh, so, versus but cutting your losses may in fact be a growth opportunity. Ah. You know? Cutting your losses, so to speak, and I can't, like I said, I, I don't know, I don't know your situation, but cutting our losses might indeed be you putting into practice things that you have learned that you are realizing now are actually going to benefit you and the other. My God, generosity for self, generosity for other, boom. And I feel like a win-win, I feel uncomfortable, but you have engaged the practice in an appropriate response to a given stimuli, whatever that might be. I'll report back. Would you please? <laughs> Everybody else, do the same. Please report back. I'll see you next week. Go, go.